That recording was from 1976, the year Arizona Republic reporter Don Bowles was murdered. But for a lot of journalists, especially IRE members, it's a feeling that still resonates today. It speaks to why we're here, why we do this exhausting, labor-intensive, sometimes dangerous work. You can kill a journalist, but you can't kill a story. In many ways, it's really the foundation IRE was built on. We saw it in Arizona after Bowles was killed while investigating the land fraud scandal. A fake tip led him to a hotel where a bomb planted under his car exploded and ultimately killed him. Don Bowles will be difficult to replace in this newsroom, but if his death was meant to scare off other reporters, it has backfired. 38 journalists traveled to Phoenix to work with IRE to finish his reporting. Their work became known as the Arizona Project, a 23-part series that ran across the country. Among the many findings to be revealed by the investigative team during the next several weeks are white-collar swindlers bribing their way to freedom. The model was replicated again in 2007, when Chauncey Bailey, an editor at the Oakland Post, was shot to death in downtown Oakland, California. Local journalists and news organizations scrambled to help finish Bailey's reporting and answer questions about his death. But it hasn't always been this way. As we'll hear on the podcast today, there are cases, big, disturbing cases, where we've fallen down on the job. I'm Daniela Vidal, and you're listening to the IRE radio podcast, IRE, with you on your beat for 40 years. Today, ProPublica reporter A.C. Thompson walks us through his reporting on one of these cases. Over a nine-year period starting in 1981, five Vietnamese-American journalists were assassinated on U.S. soil, some right out in the open. Their killers were never brought to justice. No one came to their defense to finish their work. In fact, most journalists today have likely never heard their names. Podcast contributor Aaron Pellish brings us the story. A.C. Thompson stumbled on the story we're talking about today while he was in the throes of finishing the work of another slain journalist, Chauncey Bailey. In 2007, A.C. was a reporter working on the Chauncey Bailey project when he met a guy who said something that deeply disturbed him. A filmmaker named Tony Wen uh, came to me and said, hey, you know, this actually happened in the Vietnamese-American community over and over and over again in the 1980s, and nobody knows about it. And I was just fascinated by what he had to say, and I was stunned, frankly, because I didn't know anything about it. A.C. was shocked, and rightfully so. After all, journalists make a habit of protecting each other, especially against the threat of violence. And yet, for whatever reason, this story had gone unreported. The Chauncey Bailey Project wrapped up its reporting in 2011, and by then, A.C. had already started working at ProPublica. A few years later, he reconnected with Tony Wen who had been working on a film about one of the murdered Vietnamese-American journalists. AC used Wen's reporting as the foundation for a two-year investigation into the group behind the 30-year-old murders. His three-part ProPublica story was published last year along with a frontline documentary that he produced and appeared in. Here's what he found. Between 1981 and 1990, five Vietnamese-American journalists were killed. None of those killings have been solved. And there were dozens of related terror 
acts against Vietnamese Americans, predominantly uh, journalists and writers that are also unsolved. These were arsons, these were death threats, these were beatings and shootings. And what our reporting showed was that in many of these cases, uh, a group called the, the National Front for the Liberation of Vietnam, it was a public group operating in the 80s and 90s, um, is, in, is linked to these crimes, that they are behind many of these crimes, and that the group was operating a death squad in, on U.S. soil. The other thing I think that's a sort of a key takeaway here is that we really diagrammed the, the failings of law enforcement to solve these cases, despite the, the earnest efforts of some uh, investigators. And so what you see is despite there being this wave of terror in the Vietnamese American community directed at the press, that it took from the first killing in 1981 which was clearly a terror crime, until 1995, it took about 15 years for the Federal Bureau of Investigation to make these crimes a priority and give them priority status and really investigate them with any kind of vigor and verve. To understand the significance of AC's findings and the challenges he faced in his reporting, we're going to have to do a little bit of a history lesson. I hope that's okay. All right, here it goes. It all starts with one man, Wang Ko Min. He'd been a rear admiral in the South Vietnamese Navy during the Vietnam War, but after Saigon fell, he fled Vietnam and moved to America. By the early 1980s, he and several other former South Vietnamese officers had reunited and established the National United Front for the Liberation of Vietnam or the Front for short. The Front's goal was to liberate Vietnam from communist rule, and to achieve it, the Front had a network of local chapters across the U.S. and had even set up a militia in Thailand. Then they began fundraising. Some of the money came from membership fees and magazine sales, but some of it came from shakedowns of local business owners. Around the same time, the Front also established K-9, the code name for the group's hit squad. And as the Front grew more aggressive, many in the community began to feel unsafe. Some started questioning where all that money was really going. Most of these criticisms found a voice in small, local, Vietnamese-language newspapers serving refugee populations in cities around the country. And, as far as officials could tell, the Front decided to mute the voices of their critics, by any means necessary. By the time AC got around to the story, some 30 years had passed. The journalist's deaths were no longer actively being investigated. And while you might think that distance would make the reporting a little easier, AC quickly realized that nothing about this story would be simple. The thesis here is that people were killed for the things that they wrote and the things that their newspaper published. Well, guess what? It's not really very easy to get copies of a lot of these publications now. Um, in fact, it's really, really hard. And, you know, so in some cases, we even went to um, people who published the papers who'd been um, attacked but survived and said, hey, you know, do you have copies of your old paper that you used to publish? And they'd say, oh, somewhere in the garage, or, oh, this guy has a full collection of them, or something like that, you know. And even 
um, in the best cases, it wasn't easy. He began his reporting by using documents to piece together the five killings and the ensuing investigations. He cast a wide net with his first FBI records requests, using former agents who'd worked on the case to help him make sense of the documents and craft what he called smart FOIAs to refine his search. I had um, sources with the Bureau or retired Bureau sources help explain to me, well, you know, if you see this surname, this is who this person is, and this agent worked in this field office and so forth. Um, if you see this code on the, um, this offense code on the document, that's what uh, it means. You know, this is a, a RICO case or a domestic terrorism case, and things like that. And yet, despite having a head start on his reporting thanks to Tony Wen, and despite having sources familiar with the FBI, it took him a pretty long time before he made any real headway. I would say, honestly, it was eight months into the process before we made real significant progress. It was a very long time. Um, And that was when we started getting people to really open up, and we started getting really fresh insights into who specifically was behind um, these killings and started seeing documents that were saying, hey, you know, the FBI believes that um, this group called the the Front that was a public political organization was operating a death squad and that they were linked to these crimes, that they were behind these crimes. And we started seeing, you know, FBI documents saying, you know, this informant who was a member of the group came forward and said they were responsible for this particular killing. While he was working to crack the FBI files, he began contacting sources to interview alongside Wen, who at that point provided his only real window into the Vietnamese-American community. But he ran into an early problem. One thing that became really clear to me as I started working on this project is that there was a, there's a big generational divide in the Vietnamese-American community. And many older Vietnamese-Americans who spent a lot of time in Vietnam before coming to the U.S. kind of prefer to speak and interact with other older Vietnamese Americans who are fluent in the language and have that sort of shared history. And so even though we had um, a Vietnamese American reporter on the project, Tony Nguyen, he wasn't always the best person to be in that mix doing the reporting because he doesn't speak Vietnamese very well. And he had never lived in Vietnam. He was... um, You know, he didn't have that experience of going through the war because he's younger. That's where the work of their translator slash fixer slash associate producer, Jimmy Tong Wen, became essential. He was nearly 70 years old and had served in the South Vietnamese Army, so he knew a ton of people. Jimmy Tong would come with us to Orange County or to Houston or to New Orleans or wherever and just start calling people up and saying, hey, you know, I'd like to to meet with this person or that person, and would personally make all kinds of connections for us that, frankly, we could not make on our own. And without his really tireless work, this whole project would not have happened. This, of course, brings up a second challenge, the language barrier. Even though they had a translator, the interviews were being taped for a frontline documentary, and so they had to be conducted in English whenever possible. AC's strategy was a simple one. Before taping, he said he'd meet with many of his sources over a meal or coffee to establish a degree of comfort before the camera started rolling. And even interviews that 
we did in English, there tended to be a lot of conversation in, in Vietnamese ahead of time, just because a lot of people we spoke to felt more comfortable having a robust discussion in their native tongue than, rather than in English. And then once they understood what we were trying to do and what, what our goals were and what the subject matter was, um, we could switch over to English. One of the interesting things about the Frontline documentary is that you get to see a lot of these candid, sometimes very uncomfortable conversations taking place. AC and Richard Rowley, the director of the Frontline documentary, didn't want to do a standard documentary that outlined the elements of the story and mixed in various quotes because AC was also writing an exhaustive piece for ProPublica. Instead, they filmed all the reporting live as it was happening and turned it into a first-person detective-style documentary following AC through the investigation. A, a lot of times with making a documentary, the questions you ask on camera are not questions that you're asking for the reporting piece of it. They're questions that you're asking because they're good TV and, and because they solicit emotion and because they tell a very simple story that um, viewers can comprehend. In this case, the stuff that, that we did on camera was the background reporting. It was the foundational reporting. It was the emotional stuff. It was everything. It was real reporting done on camera. At one point, you get to see AC talk to Johnny Wynn, a man the FBI listed as a suspect in the murder of one of these five journalists. AC tracks him down at a memorial for the death of Juan Co Min, and they arrange an interview. They're sitting in a small office, the two of them facing each other with a third man behind the desk, and AC starts asking about K-9, the front hit squad, and the death of one journalist, Dam Fong. And well, you can just tell from Wen's voice how he responds. Here's a clip from the documentary. This is what we've been told. At one point, you were a member of K-9. No, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. No, so you were no. never a member of the that K-9. Bullet, bullet, that bull It's bull Bullet, bull I told them, okay, go to tell the FBI. I, I am the K-9. Tell the FBI, lock me up. I told them. No fruit, no evidence. They quiet. Was the front ever involved in hurting or threatening or killing anybody here in the U.S.? Do you have any idea who was involved with killing Dam Fong? We don't involve and we don't know. We don't, we never involve like that. I never read Dam Fong magazine. I never see the Dam Fong. I never know Dam Fong. Dam Fong's family said people from the front kept calling our house and threatening Dam Fong. I think they lied. Why, why would they lie? Okay. You asked them. I, I did ask them, and that's what they told me. They you said, don't ask me. You asked them. Why does the front keep coming up in these discussions? Mr. Zung. Mr. Zung. That's the sound of Wen abruptly leaving the interview, slamming the door behind him on the way out. But even with the camera rolling in some of these more conversational settings, some of the best stuff still didn't make it onto film, which, for a documentary, is frustrating. 
you know, as we were doing these interviews, people said stuff that shocked us and surprised us constantly, constantly. I mean, probably the biggest shock happened with a, a Mr. Wenswan Nia, who appears towards the end of the film, who had been a um, spokesperson for the front. We did three interviews with him. He became progressively more open about the front having violent members and having possibly participated in particular assassinations and so forth. Here's a clip from the documentary of one of those recorded interviews. There are people who say there were some members of the group who attacked people in the U.S. who didn't agree with the group. Yeah, uh, I don't remember exactly when, but uh, there is a lot of uh, big issue assassination or violent action against the writer or this or that instance. I mean, a lot of people talking, but I am behind that kind of... <laughs> it makes me laugh. Because that's not you. You weren't behind it. No. <laughs> and at one point in these conversations, the camera gets turned off. And then we turned off the camera, and he said to us, and so, you know, there was this time I was sitting in a meeting of front members, and they were all planning to assassinate this um, newspaper publisher here in Orange County. And I said, no, I don't think we should do that. I, I, I don't think we should kill him. Like, let's not kill him. And so we didn't kill him. And it's crazy, man, you know? Uh, wow. And, and we were just, Rick and I were just, um, we were just stunned because <laughs> here was this sort of mea culpa um, speaking to everything that we had been investigating, these attacks on journalists, and the guy who had denied knowing anything about it had only opened the door to the notion that it was possible the group had been involved in attacking people, just says, yeah, um, once the camera goes off, yeah, this, uh, you know, absolutely plans were made to assassinate journalists. Um, and I think we were both absolutely uh, shocked by that. You know, we didn't expect that sort of admission, I don't think. And, you know, that that's the, the part where turning off the camera, sometimes you get a totally different take than you do um, when the camera's on. But of all the challenges he encountered during his interviews, the one he had most trouble navigating was the political orientations of each of his sources. He really had no way of knowing how his sources felt about the front, whether they empathized with them or were critical of them, whether they had regarded their time in the front or still pledged their loyalty to it. AC said he and his team were frequently blundering around this issue. People do not necessarily flag for you their allegiances when you start speaking to them. And, um, you know, there are times when, when you are speaking to people and you realize, oh, this conversation is one that is not going to be helpful to, <laughs> to me <laughs> because of the, the person's um, ongoing allegiance to that group and to that um, movement. And um, this person is going to the, then go and tell a bunch of people not to talk to me. And, you know, that, that kind of stuff happens because, it's, you know, people just don't necessarily wear that sort of political information on their sleeve. Was that frustrating in any respect? Oh, you know, yeah, it was, it was deeply frustrating. And it was sort of the thing that if I spoke the Vietnamese language 
And if I was immersed in the older generation community, it was a thing that would not have happened to me. And it's a thing that people like Jimmy Tong on occasion would say to me, I told you this was going to happen. You didn't listen to me. Um, and, you know, uh, and he was right. Um, but that's just sort of the challenge of doing this kind of reporting. The second element AC wanted to look at in his reporting of this story was the front's relationship to the U.S. government. There was a lot of circumstantial evidence that suggested that the U.S. might have been funding the front in some way. The FBI practically ignored the front for more than a decade, the same decade in which President Reagan funded anti-communist militias in other parts of the world. And the leader of the front, Juan Comin, had connections to several U.S. military officials, including Richard Armitage, a former U.S. Navy officer who worked closely with the South Vietnamese Navy and rose to a senior Pentagon position in the 1980s. So AC went to Thailand and talked with several former Thai military officials. For all of them, our question was, you know, were you guys working in concert with the U.S. government at all? And I, you know, we got different answers back, I'll say, from folks. But the thing that was, that the only thing that we felt we could really verify was his connection to Richard Armitage. And that was a thing that we kept hearing over and over again from people within the front, um, from people all over the story, you know, and so we really could not find proof of a connection to the U.S. government uh, other than that. AC also wanted to go to Thailand to investigate the front's soldier training camps. And while this may seem kind of tangential to the question of these journalists' deaths, it helped him get a better sense of who these people were what they believed in, and how they operated. I have people calling me now who used to be in the group who are saying, yes, I was there and people were killed. People were were killed by um, the leadership of the front in our base. And I think one thing that you take from that is that if a group is willing to kill its own um, soldiers, its own followers, then it might be willing to kill people that it views as enemies on the outside. Once AC started putting the story together, he had trouble figuring out how to incorporate all of the elements. This story deals with so many moving parts over such a long period of time that even for a veteran reporter, it was a little daunting. It spanned more than 40 years. You know, it connected back to Vietnam and and the lives people had led back in Vietnam. We have FOIAs going back to 1965 from the CIA. Um, It involved local police agencies across the United States, as well as in Canada, the the Royal um, Canadian Mounted Police, the police up there, involved um, FBI offices around the country, involved the CIA, involved the Defense Department, involved the National Security Council, involved the Thai military, involved, um, you know, all these different sort of characters and different government agencies were involved. So, trying to stitch that all together and um, render this cast of characters that wasn't so huge and tell a story that wasn't so sweeping over so many years that people couldn't follow it. Yeah, that was, that was the hard thing. And I think my editor, Joe Sexton, I think, I I think that he helped, um, helped craft a story that 
was comprehensible. I'll say the first draft I gave him um, was probably not comprehensible, <laughs> you know. The thing that drew AC to this story from the beginning was that it was one of the largest unsolved cases of domestic terrorism in American history, and yet it was more or less a secret to anyone outside the Vietnamese-American community. AC felt a strong sense of responsibility on behalf of the English-speaking media for not serving the public interest until it was too late, until lives had been lost, until the memories of those five journalists had nearly been lost to time. All the, the media had basically failed. They had never really assigned uh, reporters to go out and chase down this story and try to piece it together and say, who are these criminals? Who are these terrorists who are terrorizing our colleagues in the Vietnamese uh, American press? Why haven't these cases been solved? How could you kill five journalists in the U.S. over and over and over again and get away with it? Why is this happening? And, and how could you terrorize all these other people, threaten them with death, um, put out communiques saying, we're going to kill you, kill people and put out communiques and say, hey, we killed this guy because we don't like his politics and get away with it. I mean, it was stunning to me, to use the word again, that the, to see how badly the American English language press had fallen down on this subject. AC's ProPublica story and the Frontline documentary ran in November. Since then, AC has received dozens of tips from readers, and he plans on writing some follow-ups this year. He said that despite the difficulty of the reporting, he's proud to have provided a service to a community. I say a lot that it was a really hard story, it was a really challenging story, but the truth is that it was also an incredibly interesting story, and it was an incredibly fun story in many ways. It was incredibly rewarding. This is one of the most significant unsolved terror cases in U.S. history, in modern U.S. history. We're talking about some three dozen terror acts. We're talking about five murdered journalists, other people who were shot and um, severely beaten, and we're talking about a long reign of impunity that spanned a decade in which these crimes were occurring and into the present. This is about a fundamental question of justice and equity in the United States, and it's fundamentally about the right of people in this country to express themselves freely. And that, to me, is highly universal, highly universal. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. Head over to ire.org podcast to browse our archives. And as always, if you have any questions or comments about the podcast, IRE, or anything else, please do drop us an email. Aaron Palish reported our story this week. IRE web editor Sarah Hutchins is our editor, and you can find all of our emails in the show notes. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Daniela Vidal. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that already. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Podcast. Podcast.